This is Tani Talks Radio this year, where we talk about a topic for the week for the audience members to keep. We are dedicating this year for the safety and the security for all of those chayalim, those heroes on the front lines. They should be happy, healthy, and safe. They should go and be tzeschem l'shalom, b'lachem l'shalom, Hashem shalat, and be zochet, to be successful in eradicating all the evil and all the horrific, horrific people and aspects that are out there. And they should come back happy, safe, and sound. And all those who are in captivity should be Zoha to come back happy, healthy, and safe. So a few were released, but we should be Zoha that all of them are released, and all those who need Rafu Shalem, I should have Rafu Shalem, and all those who were murdered, massacred, and killed in a brutal, horrific, terrible, terrible way, their their blood should be avenged by Hashem. Hashem, you come to mum, and the Shia should be a Zachas for all of these people, and we should only know the Gula Shlema with Mashiach coming speedily in our days, and may that in fact be today. We should be Zoha that Mashiach comes speedily in our days with the coming of the base of Migdash, speedily in our days with Eliyahu and we should know no more sorrow and no more pain and no more troubleness at any level only good only wonderful only fantastic things as a side note you should know it's always good to be up in the news and, and to be following what's happening, but I would recommend not to be in it all day, all the time. It's very difficult to be involved, but there is a great WhatsApp group that I invite you to join. It's called Israel Good News Only. It's actually my favorite group of the entire day. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff that's happening around the world and in Israel for the sake of the Chayalim, for the sake of those in captivity to be redeemed and released, and for the sake of those who need a refuah shlema. It's a wonderful WhatsApp group. You want to join? Let me know, and I'll hopefully send you a way to join. Maximum TEE7 at gmail.com. The way that we can make sure that they have a zechus is by doing shiurim and by being involved in wonderful good things, wonderful chesed on their behalf, and wonderful things on the behalf of all those people. And we could be able to have only good things and only good aspects for all these people around. The question is, what can we do on a small level in our own lives to try to be a zechus for those people around us, try to be a wonderful thing for those people in Israel and those who really need it? And and people have talked about how in a certain way, in a, in a small way, we could try to sacrifice something in our own lives and try to push ourselves a little bit, a little bit in our lives. And that's what I thought about the ability is to find in our lives what we could do to cut back a little bit because sometimes we're a little too comfortable in our lives we're a little too comfortable in our lives sometimes we are too complacent too cushy to get any real work or any progress done we feel too settled where we are figuratively literally spiritually and geographically it reminds me of the metaphor or the example of being sunk into a really comfortable couch in fact baruch hashem our couch a large sectional which met with the matching fainting couch has such a feeling to it, especially the corner piece, which has been wonderfully, wonderfully comfortable for all of us. It's quite difficult to get up from such a couch for many people. It takes real effort. In life, like the couch, we feel too settled, too set in it to get up and to make change. To sacrifice in our own lives is a little difficult sometimes. To change the status quo, to make a difference in our days and in our lives, we get too complacent. Thinking that our, our five minutes of learning every day are enough, that our $10 to tzedakah are enough, or that we donate clothing once a year is good enough, or that we made one food one time a half a year ago for some family is just good enough and we're Yotzer Achiv and we're done with that 
we think it's too hard or too difficult to go around the world. Think about all these these heroic, heroic people right now, here in October 2023, these amazing people that were all around the world, that were living very cushy lives, that were traveling and having the time of their lives. What did they do? They got up and they left. We used to think, how could we live in Israel? How could we go there? What, how do people live there? I'm going to leave my house and go to an apartment. No more grass. No more back and front yard. How could I be without my driveway? Who could afford a house there, even a semi-attached one? How could I live in an apartment and lose all of this? I can't live in this sweltering heat. Look at these heroic, heroic people that literally drop everything to go. All these people that left their wives and their kids and ran to serve in the front lines. These 2,000 Haredim that signed up to come serve in the idea of beautiful, beautiful things. We think about in our life, what can we do on some level to be involved, to try to sacrifice a little bit of comfort a little bit in our lives what can we do to make sure in our lives that we try to do a little bit for the sake of those they want people we want people in this world to take on mitzvahs to take on shabbos to take on lighting candles to do to go a little bit out of their comfort zone especially for mitzvahs to put on tefillin to put on tzitzis but for a person that baruch hashem does all that already what can we do we get up caught up in the details and think about how we can't do more it's too hard to do more but it's blatantly untrue we need to do more especially for the zechus of all these people in Israel and beyond and we can do more we just need to think about what can we do the question to really ask ourselves is are we comfortable really are we actually comfortable properly comfortably Properly comfortable with our stance in life, with what we are doing now, with where we are living now? Is there more we can do? Is there somewhere better in our lives we can be? Something more we could do with our lives, especially as a zechus for Eretz Yisrael? What can we do? What can we do? Sometimes we think about what we could go beyond the fact, beyond the grain, to be a little less comfortable and to be a little more moster nefesh for the land, for the people. Think about what the word comfortable really means. You know, the the Jews in the Midbar, the Jews in the desert, were there for 40 years. And what did they have? They had a tent. And even the tent wasn't much involved. I don't know if they had beds or tables or chairs. They had to move like 18 times within 18 to 20 or so times within the 40 years, only staying a few spots a few months at a time. What did they have? Were they comfortable? Are we too comfortable? We also tend to gravitate to mitzvahs and chesed that are familiar, that are comfortable, that are usual, especially for the Asar that we're in right now, especially for the difficult times we're in. Maybe we should push ourselves to do mitzvahs that are not so comfortable, that are not so easy, that are not so usual. How many mitzvahs do we skip over because it's not in our regular comfort arena do we want to miss out on all the opportunities and mitzvahs that are out there that are a little out of our range a little out of our comfort on a tiny tiny level you think about you think about someone that's sitting shiva for a relative that was passed and you see the mitzvah sign-up sheet for mishnayas people right away gravitate to the mishnas that are either very small two prokim three prokim four prokim or they gravitate to the mishnas they know very well perkeavos is always taken every time i check never able to get it it's always taken or people gravitate to the ones that are very usual brachos and shabbos but how many of those other ones do people really take
You know, I myself am guilty of taking the small ones just out of uh, time constraints and time concerns. So I've taken Ukitsin before and I've taken Horaius before. Yadayim, those are very small ones. But a small aspect, a small level, going out of your comfort zone, even for something as small as that, that's something we could do on a tiny level to take an opportunity to take a mitzvah that's a little out there, a little out of our, out of our range, a little out of our comfort, especially for the benefit of Klai Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael at this time. Lahavda Wayne Gretzky once famously said, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. The full quote, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, even though there's only a 1-5% to probability of scoring. Don't miss out on the shots in life, on the mitzvahs in our lives, even if we may not score or win in that mitzvah department, even though it might not be so easy for us. What can we do? We also get too comfortable in the whole idea of the fact where we're living. A lot, a lot of Jews are, Baruch Hashem, Rov Am, most of the Jewry nowadays is in Israel, but we get too comfort too comfortable outside of Israel? Are we actually comfortable living in Gullus among non-Jews? Are we actually comfortable staying in a dead-end job for those people who keep the same job for 40 years with no happiness, with no growth, with no potential just to pay the bills? Are we actually comfortable doing the daily grind every single day on repeat with no end in life? It's Lahavda like the Groundhog Day where the person goes for the same thing every single day without any differentiation, without any difference. What do we do all day? How do we spend our time? Can we say we had a productive day doing lots of mitzvahs and lots of good for others when we look back at the day? Was it comfortable or was it meaningful? Unfortunately, sometimes people choose comfort way over meaning. It shouldn't be that we can't have both. You can have a meaningful day and then you could sit down and have comfortable time relaxing with your spouse and then later on with yourself once everything's done. But the bulk of the day, the energy of the day, when you're able to get most things done, I always say that's usually for me from like 7 to 7 is usually when I have the most energy, then the energy dies out. But we should only be zochet good things. The question can be oftentimes though, was the day comfortable versus meaningful, unfortunately? Was it impactful or was it wasteful? I heard a quote from a friend of mine and I thought, thought it was a very sad quote. My friend, uh, I was talking to a couple of a months ago, and he said, I just had a great day. And I'm like, great? What did you do today? What was your day? I went through nine hours of watching hockey. What a great day. Isn't that the saddest? Isn't that a terrible, tragic way to use your day? Nine hours? Yes, we've all binged before. Yes, we've all wasted some time. But nine hours of the day when it was the most probable time where you can make impact from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You just watched hockey the whole day. Those are like the most crucial hours to actually get done. It's before the energy waxes and wanes from us at the end of the night, at the end of the day. That's the most productive time. What a waste of a day. Is it an impactful day or is it a wasteful day? Did we spend all the time reading blogs or websites or did we learn Torah, give to others, affect real Kiddush Hashem in our own lives? When we stay where we are, where we are comfortable, we don't challenge ourselves, we don't rise to the occasion, we don't move out of the comfort zone. We should rise above the comfort, challenge ourselves and surroundings to define what real comfort is. Of course, we're allowed to be comfortable, but we have to define what is really needed and what is really important. I'm watching a show currently called A Tiny House Nation, Lahavdom. It really puts into perspective what a person really needs. You know, these people challenge themselves. I don't advocate this for my wife or our kids ourselves. 
I don't advocate it for other people, but it just is in mindset. It's an interesting mindset where they define what they really need. So they have a, a 20 by 20, 400 square foot, and that's a huge one. Usually it's like between two and 400 square foot. There's a kitchenette area. There's an eating area sometimes. There's a living area sometimes. Sometimes they combine it. And yes, there's a bathroom. I really don't understand how the plumbing works, by the way. I, I'm very curious about that. I should reach out and understand because if these are mobile, where in the world is all the waste going? I don't know. But there's also a bed area, usually on top, and that's it. And they figure out what they need. It kind of reminds me, you know, back in the day, La Havda, La Havda, they were only in tents. They didn't have kitchens or bathrooms or whatnot. They had very small living. You don't need 17 bedrooms. You don't need 40 acres to be comfortable. These people that buy $6 million houses, what do they do with all that space? Crazy. You can be comfortable in a small three-bedroom house. You don't need a den. You don't need a family room. You don't need an entertaining room. You don't need a grand room. You don't need a, a, a rib room like this. Growing up, the joke was that everybody had a living room and a den, and no one ever used the living room. It was a, a museum piece. You weren't even allowed in in different types of houses. That's a waste. That's meaningless. We can learn to live with less. We can learn to need less. That's why so many people you know, make the move to Israel, and they don't have a house. They can't afford a house, but they learn to be happy. You know, you think about these families that have six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids, and they have three bedrooms, maybe four bedrooms if they're lucky, five if, like, uber, uber lucky. But the, the kitchen is one room or area. The living room, dining room is a combination, kind of like what we had in, in Brooklyn, the Havdil. It was a combination room, and then the bathroom and the bedrooms, and that's it. There's no extra playroom and a den and a grand room and a this room and a that room. You learn to live with less, and sometimes when you live with less and you understand needs versus wants, necessity versus extravagance, you can learn how to be happy. Because Ezehu Chacham Ben Zoma teaches us in Perkeyavos Dalad Aleph, Ezehu Chacham Hasameach Bechalka, Ezehu Ashir, excuse me, Hasameach Bechalka, who's really rich, not the person that has $18 million in his bank account and a 70 house it's wasteful so wasteful you can learn to define what really is properly comfortable and properly necessary not what society tells you that is needed for comfort Rabbi Rosner explained, and he said a beautiful, beautiful thing. I implore you to find his uh, his message that was floating around WhatsApp this past week about before the the light is always darkness throughout history. We saw this in uh, World War II, in the Holocaust. It was a very, very tragically dark period. But then three we, three years later was a beautifully light period. So Rabbi Rosner explains that there's always darkness before light, and because we went through darkness, we should be zolchet to only have light. Bekarov, it should only be Mashiach and good things speedily in our days, and everybody should be protected. But Rabbi Rosner explained in his Sefer Shalom Rav on Parshas Vayechi, my favorite Parsha in the whole Torah, because I am biased, this is my Barth Mitzvah Parsha. Why did Yaakov mention the negative of not wanting to be buried in Mitzrayim? I'll take Barani by Mitzrayim, he says a couple of times, when he's imploring Yosef, who is the only one of real power to do so, because he swears to Paro to do so. Why did he talk about the negative before the positive? Why did he say, I don't want to be buried in Mitzrayim, rather than saying, I want to be buried only in Israel, in Ma'aras Machpelah, with his forefathers? Rashi explains that Yaakov didn't want to be buried in the dirt of Egypt that would one day turn to to live during the Makos. It would turn to lice during the Makos. Yaakov did not want to have to roll to Israel, to Eretz Yisrael, at the time of the resurrection of the dead. Yaakov did not want the Egyptians to worship him as a deity. But these just deep, deep in the question of why not ask to be buried in Israel in the positive sense. 
Rav Yehu Schlesinger explains and suggests that at the end of Parshas Vayigash, the Torah states that the Bnei Yisrael lived in Goshen and they took hold of it. This implies that Bnei Yisrael were getting a little too comfortable in Egypt. They were getting a little too comfy, a little too cozy. And Mitzrayim Yaakov already saw the writing on the wall. He saw what was happening to Am Yisrael, realized the tremendous danger his descendants would be in if they felt too comfortable in exile, if they felt too comfortable in Gullus. He saw that his children and his descendants, he saw that they had the risk of forgetting about Eretz God forbid. Therefore, says Rabbi Shelsinger, Yaakov explained the fact that he didn't want to remain in Egypt even after his death. He was telling his children that they were getting too comfortable outside of Eretz on a practical level. It would be too hard for the children to leave if he was buried there as well, cementing the presence there. He was instructing them not to call Egypt a permanent abode or to call it home. How true and how practical for all of us as well. America is not our true home. We look for the day and we hope for the day and we should be zocha to the day where Mashiach comes. We hear that huge shofar and we feel the tremendous longing to be really home because our true goal is not in Gullis. Our true goal is not in America. We feel for the soldiers. We feel for all the people in Israel, but we're not able to be there yet and we should all be zocha to be there yet as soon as we can. Hopefully Mashiach coming. Even if you can't go live there, there is an idea, there is an aspect. We shall be zocha to live until 120, but there's an aspect to be buried there. When being buried in America, it is sort of solidifying the presence and connection to the land that is not Israel. And Yaakov saw this moons ago, years, 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 years ago. Don't get too comfortable in the land that is not Israel. Don't get too comfortable in life where you live and what you do if it is not connected with what you are really meant to do. It also reminds me of the idea of Yosef versus Moshe. How come Moshe was not Zohar to be buried in Israel? He's buried in in. I forget what the mountain's called, of course, but he's buried in a certain place which was not Israel, and nobody knows where it is because it didn't want to turn into a shrine, into a deity for non-Jewish people. And Mo- Yosef was Zohar to be buried in Israel. Why? Because when Yosef was taken from prison, when he was talked about, and when he was there alone, literally alone in the entire Mitzrayim, he identified himself in a different way than Moshe identified. I believe Rashi and the commentators point out, when Moshe comes to Midian, when he flees for his life from Mitzrayim, they ask him who he is, and first and foremost he says, I am an Egyptian. Yosef, when he's confronted and he's literally alone, also Moshe's alone in Midian, Yosef's alone in Mitzrayim, when Yosef is asked who is he, he talks about himself being an Ivri. And even even when we talk about Yonah on the um, on Yom Kippur, the whole story of Yonah, he also identifies himself as an Ivri. And of course, you know, Avraham in the in the next few weeks, Parsha, some of my favorite Parshas, also talks about being an Ivri. When we solidify our presence and we solidify ourselves and our nationality and we're, we stay true and strong to what we believe in, we can be Zilcha, hopefully, to end up in Israel also after 120. So Moshe, because he identified himself not as a Jew first and foremost, Hashem didn't let him be buried in Israel. But Yosef, even though he lived his life in Mitzvah, Mitzrayim, he solidifies himself first as a foremost as a Jewish person, even though it wasn't comfortable, even though it wasn't easy, even though he stood out by himself without any support in the entire Mitzrayim, he was able to be Zohar, to be buried in Israel. And that's also very true for us nowadays. 
the people come out and show their true colors when there's true good versus true evil. As the even the non-Jews, the secular non-Jews, the political leaders, and people in general talk about, now is the time for moral clarity, and there's a moral depravity very, very evident, very, very, very easily seen. People are standing up for Hamas, standing up for Palestinians, pure evil. People standing up for Israel, people standing up for the Jews, pure good. And it's easy to see the two. And when you don't stand and don't have a firm basis to what you really believe in, it's very easy to lose yourself in the murky waters. And they say that the the non-Jewish people, I haven't tested it, obviously, we should never test it, we never have to test it, but they say that when you have the strength to stand up for your beliefs, when you wear the kippah at work, if it's safe to do so, and you stand up for your beliefs, they'll respect you all the more so. But when you try to assimilate, it never goes well, and they'll always pick you out, they'll always find you. In in World War Two, Yamach Shomon wanted to kill every Jew, it doesn't matter religious or secular, it doesn't matter Dati or not. And now, too, the evil, they want to eradicate every single Jew. doesn't matter Dati or not. So in the end, stand up and be the Ivory, and remember, you can't be too comfortable. Rabbi Barnes explains on com. which would you rather have, a comfortable life or a meaningful life? Sometimes people choose one versus the other. If you want to think about it a little, you can. In his unscientific study, Rabbi Barnes found that nearly everyone answers a meaningful, comfortable life. Ha! Given the choice of comfort or meaning, just about everyone would choose meaning. But that is never how the choice appears. How it appears is that there are three choices, meaning, comfort, or comfortable meaningful. As an extreme example, the Western world knew that confronting the evil dictator, the Yamach Shemo in World War II and the Holocaust, was the meaningful and right thing to do. They also knew that the comfortable and wrong thing to do was to leave him alone, giving those Given those two stark choices, it wasn't just British, British Prime Minister Chamberlain who thought that they found the perfect answer in signing a peace treaty with him. Most sided with him because being comfortably meaningful is just easier. It's also fairly easy to see these same types of mistakes being made in the world nowadays, and not just in politics, but in everyday life. It's like Lahavdul, a teenager living at home. It's nice and comfortable. He would like it to be meaningful, too. He wants to make meaningful decisions, but he doesn't want to be held responsible when those decisions go awry because he doesn't really want meaning. He wants comfort. Going into the land of Israel was not comfortable at all for the Jewish people. In the land of Israel, the Jewish people would have to fight evil themselves, cultivate the land, set up a system of government, and take care of each other. That's not comfortable or easy, but it is extremely meaningful. We can learn to live a real meaningful life, pushing ourselves into different aspects, not just a comfortable one, and don't try to combine the two with messing up the priorities. Live with what you need and get comfort with that and make sure the life is really properly meaningful with the life that you have. Rabbi Lev points out on H.com, at the very least, we should be hoping and anxiously anticipating returning to Israel when the Mashiach comes, as many people are thinking and praying and saying, now I just read something today, that a person was like on the brink of death, which never knows such things, and she had a dream, a tremendous dream, where she went up to Shemayim, and the angels and Hashem were going back and forth, Kiviyachom, bring the redemption, bring the redemption, Hashem says it's not the time yet, the angels say there's so much tragedy, there's so much terribleness, there's so much destruction, there's so much barbarism, bring the redemption, now and Hashem says if everybody would unite, if everybody would anxiously wait for Mashiach and really say it and be biachan and for real as the movement in Israel and around the world is doing, if everyone would keep up the unity forever, then it would come. We have to really anxiously anticipate returning to Israel. Do you know that the Chavetz Chaim literally, they say, had a suitcase packed in the front of his house and his house was very sparsely furnished on purpose? 
a businessman once came to his house saying, I'll buy you an entire house. I'll buy you all your furniture. And he says to the businessman, where's your furniture? And the businessman says back to the Chavetz Chaim, what do you mean? I'm traveling. I'm traveling through here. Why would I bring anything here? Chavetz Chaim says back to him, I too am traveling. This is only a transitory life. I want to make Aliyah one day. Mashiach should come. Why should I have so much stuff? He literally had a bag packed. How many people actually have a bag packed? Isn't it fascinating? Wouldn't that be interesting to have your go bag just like a person makes a go bag when having a kid or if they need to run to a hospital we should never know from such things so too we should have a go bag we should be anxiously anticipating returning to Israel Mashiach could come at any time I will tell you the Gemara, I told my wife this today the Gemara does say that Hashem doesn't want to be mitareach us matriach us that it would be on an Arab Shabbos or Shabbos but it could be a Wednesday it could be a Thursday it could be any day besides for the times that Hashem doesn't want to make us be you know rushing against Shabbos we were derived from Maimonides from Rambam anyone who does not believe that the Mashiach will come or who does not wait his coming denies Torah we know it's one of the biggest principles of the 13 principles of faith we have so many songs about it you know not the right tune but he could come at any time he could come at any day with some caveats but we must be aware that we are lacking something significant in our lives without Mashiach there is no greater destruction to the Jewish soul than to lose the awareness of the bitterness of exile and diaspora there is the idea, by the way, of a person I once read on Aish, a person who was teaching like refugees, people who came, immigrated from Ethiopia, and they had no access to technology for years and years and years. And she's teaching them about Tishbab, and she's teaching them about the loss of the base of Migdash, and, and they were like aghast, and their mouths were open, and they're like, what are you saying? Don't talk fear. And she says, what are you talking about? And they said, the base of Migdash, Chayvakayim, what are you talking about? We're going to go visit it. And she's like, what do you mean? They're like, the base of Migdash is standing in your and she says to them no it's not and they were like ready to pelt her with stones god forbid because they didn't believe her turns out that they had a tradition for years and years generations upon generations they had no internet no connection to any electronics they fully believed that there was a base of when she told them that there actually is no base of English, they literally all broke down and cried I don't know any person that can feel such tremendous loss of the base English like these people who literally had their reality crushed. But we don't feel that. We don't understand that because we don't really fully depict and understand the bitterness of the exile, the bitterness of the diaspora. We don't fully comprehend what's lost. So we yearn, we should yearn on some level to understand what's lost, to understand what's not with us. I want to, uh, to understand when Mashiach comes, there's going to be full clarity. We're going to be understanding what there is. And we're going to understand what is not there. And we're going to understand what we need to have. There's no greater destruction to the Jewish soul than to lose the awareness of the bitterness of exile and the diaspora. We have to try to understand what we need to have. We have to understand what we want to have. There's going to be peace and glory. And the, under, the whole world will understand what the Jewish people are like and what the Jewish people stand for and how they're right and how so much was missing in this life. There's a story told about a rabbi who was building a yeshiva in America who appreciated this idea. The contractor offered to use finished wood that lasts 150 years. I apologize. The, the, the little one is teething. Not happy. Just woke up from her sleeping so sorry about that there's a story talked about a person the contractor offered to use finished wood that lasts 150 years instead of regular wood which usually lasts 90 years before it begins to rot the rabbi said use the regular wood we don't want to make our stay in outside israel too permanent 
One of the questions that we will be asked after 120 years in this world is whether we would see peace of Yehoshua. Yeshua, excuse me. Did we yearn for the salvation of God in Israel, as Shabbos in 31a points out? What does yearning mean? It's when a patient takes a biopsy exam, which never know from Sashing, and needs to wait three days for the results to see if the growth is benign or not. How he yearns, those three days last forever. And on the third day, every phone ring is met with anticipation. Will this finally be the call he's waiting for? Do we yearn for Mashiach? Often we ask ourselves, why do we even need Mashiach? What are we missing? This is a symptom of our spiritual malady. We no longer recognize the need to relate to Hashem in the holiest place and in the closest manner, which is what Mashiach will bring to the world. We utilize our comforts and our freedom in exile to serve Hashem better, but we must never feel too attached to our culture and to our land outside of Israel. We should yearn for the time when we will leave the exile forever and unite with our land, our nation, and God once again. Someday we will all be together in Yerushalayim, and may it be very, very, very soon. We don't even realize what we are missing. We are so enraptured by Gullus and our comforts that we have lost the feeling of what it means to have no temple and no real sovereignty or peace in the land with the presence of Hashem seen and felt daily. Every year... Karen Gottlieb points out on H.com a fascinating story on how to, how to really feel the temple's loss, and we alluded to some aspect of this of that we talked about before, but this is the true story written much better than I could explain it. Every year when Tisha B'Av came around, people sometimes have a certain dilemma. This is supposed to be a day in which we mourn the destruction of our temple. It's a day when we do not eat, we don't drink, we don't wear leather shoes, and we follow varied and unique mourning customs. <laughs> Every year people arrive at the synagogue at the shul to hear Eicha, which bemoans the destruction of Yerushalayim. However, every year many would end up daydreaming about totally unrelated things. As the cantor would be reading about the temple, about the Mikdash, they would completely disconnect, planning the summer vacation, celebrating the end of exams, or just hoping the fast would go well this time. It's difficult to be truly mournful over something that took place 2,000 years ago, something we've never seen and don't really feel lacking in the daily life. As part of the army service that the author had, where she was placed to her delight in a teacher's unit, she served at the Beit Hatzor caravan site located near Gadeira. The site held 700 caravans, which housed thousands of new Ethiopian immigrants. In the morning, she taught immigrants at the Yad Shabtai school in Ashdod. In the afternoon and evening hours, she served as a counselor on the site. This was shortly after Operation Solomon in 1993, during which 14,500 Jews from Ethiopia were airlifted to Israel. It was a special and moving operation, and the entire Israeli population was surprised to see that suddenly there were Jews walking around here who had in fact been severed from the nation many generations ago. They observed Shabbos, were familiar with most of the holidays, and kept Jewish tradition in a devout and traditional manner, but it was clear they didn't know everything. The separation they had undergone throughout all those years had influenced their system of traditions. They had never heard of Independence Day or Yom Yerushalayim, or even about Pormer Hanukkah, none of these later historical events that took place subsequent to their break-off from the Jewish nation. The author realized that unless she concentrated on filling these gaps of knowledge, their adjustment in Israel would never be complete. She decided to allot a considerable amount of time each day to teach them about Judaism. The month of Nisan had arrived and she started teaching about the holiday of Passover. Pesach. The, that class consisted of 20 students, grades 3 to 6. They were placed according to the reading level rather than chronological age. These children had come to Israel only a few months before. And more than anything else, they loved to hear stories, mainly because they didn't have to read or write in Hebrew, which was still quite a difficult task for some of them. 
The plan was first to connect Pesach to the other holidays by very briefly reviewing the three major festivals during the year when the Jewish nation would ascend to Yerushalayim. Today is the first day of Nisan and Pesach is celebrated on this month, she began. Pesach is one of the three festivals when the entire Jewish people used to go to Jerusalem to the temple. At this point, a student jumped up, cutting her off mid-sentence. Teacher, have you ever been to the temple? She smiled at him, realizing that he was somewhat confused. No, of course not. That was a very long time ago. The student was insistent, and a few more pairs of eyes joined him. Fine, it was a long time ago, but were you there? Were you at the temple a long time ago? She smiled again, this time slightly confused herself. Doesn't he understand? Perhaps the Hebrew is too difficult for him, she thought. No, of course not. That was a very long time ago. Now the rest of the students joined up in a uproar. You've never been there? Teacher, what it's like being in the temple? What does the temple look like? Quiet, she tried calming everyone down. Listen, everyone, there is no temple. There used to be a temple many years ago, but, but today we don't have a temple. It was destroyed, burned down. I've never seen it. I've never been to it. My father never has been to it. My grandfather's never been to it. We haven't had a temple for 2,000 years. She said these words over and over, having a very hard time believing that this was so strange for them to hear. What's the big deal? This is the reality which, with which we've all grown up with. Why are they so bothered by this? The tumult in the class was steadily increasing. They began talking amongst themselves in Amharic, arguing, translating, explaining, shouting as she lost total control over the whole class. When the bell rang, they collected their things and ran home. She left the school exhausted and utterly confused. The next morning, she was hardly bothered by the previous day's events. In fact, she had nearly forgotten all about the incident. That day, she had planned to teach just math, geometry, and other secular subjects. She got off the bus and leisurely made her way towards the school. As she neared the gate, the guard approached her, seeming a bit alarmed. Tell me, do you have any idea what's going on here today? She tried recalling a special activity that was supposed to be going on or some ceremony that she had forgotten about, but nothing exceptional came to mind. Why do you ask? she asked. What happened? He didn't answer. He only pointed towards the entrance of the school. She raised her head and saw a sizable gathering of Ethiopian adult immigrants, apparently the students' parents. What are they doing here? What are they yelling about? She went over them, attempting to understand what was the matter from the little Amharic that she knew. As she came closer, everyone quieted down. One of the adults whose Hebrew was on a higher level asked her, Are you our children's teacher? Yes, she answered. What's the matter, sir? Our children came home yesterday and told us that the teacher taught them that the temple in Jerusalem no longer exists. Who would tell them such a thing? He looked at her in anger. She said, I told them that. We were discussing the temple, and I felt that they were a bit confused, so I explained to them that the temple had been burned down thousands of years ago, and that today we no longer have a temple. That's all. What's all the fuss about? He was incredulous. What? What are you talking about? She was more confused than ever. She said, I don't understand. What are you all angry about? I simply reminded them of the fact that the temple was destroyed and that it no longer exists today. Another uproar, this one even louder than before. The representatives quieted the others down and again turned to the lecture to the author. Are you sure? She said, am I sure that the temple was destroyed? Of course I'm sure. She couldn't hide her smile. What a strange scene. The man turned to his friends and in a dramatic tone translated what was told to him. At this point, things seemed to be finally sinking in. Now, however, a different scene commenced. One woman fell to the ground. A second broke down in tears. A man standing by them just stared in disbelief. A group of men began quietly talking amongst themselves very fast in confusion and disbelief. The children stood on the side looking on in great puzzlement. Another woman suddenly broke into a heart-rendering cry. Her husband came over to her to hug her. The teacher stood there in utter shock. 
She felt as if she had brought them the worst news possible. It was as if she just told them of the death of a loved one. She stood there across from a Jew, group of Jews who were genuinely mourning the destruction of the temple. A few months later, it was Tishabov. The teacher had already been discharged from the army. On the way to college and the military service seemed as if it had been a, such a long time ago. As she did every year, she went to the synagogue to the shul. Everyone was seated on the floor, customary for mourners, and she was waiting to hear the book of Eicha. She had expected, as in previous years, for this to be a time for daydreaming and hoped she wouldn't get too hungry. The Megillah reading began, and she started reading the first two verses. Alas! She sits in solitude like a widow. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheek. She has no comforter from all her people. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. Suddenly, that first day of Nisan began replaying in her mind the angry looks of the children, the parents' screams, the mother's crying, the men's pitiful silence, the shock they were overcome with as they received the terrible news, as if she had just told them about the death of a loved one. At that moment, she understood. She understood this was exactly how we were supposed to mourn the temple, the, the Mikdash. On Tishba, we are supposed to cry over the loss of the unity and peace throughout the entire world, which unfortunately we see so often today. We are supposed to lament the disappearance of the of divine presence of the Shekhinah of Hashem, the holiness from our lives in Israel. We are supposed to be pained by the destruction of our spiritual center, which served to unify the entire Jewish nation. We are supposed to feel as if something very precious has been taken away from us forever. We are meant to cry, to be shocked, to be angry, to break down. We are supposed to mourn over the destruction of the temple, of the Mikdash, to cry over a magnificent era that was uprooted from the face of the earth. The incredible closeness that we had with God, the feeling that He's truly within us, evaporated and disappeared into thin air. Now when Tishabov rolls around, she goes back to that incident with the students and the parents and connect to the meaningful lesson that they taught or what it truly means to mourn for the loss of our holy temple. We, in our lives, have gotten too comfortable, too distanced from what we lost in the temple, from what really matters in life. It doesn't matter where you're holding in life. Your religiosity level doesn't matter if you're secular or dati. It doesn't matter if you're doing this or that, if you're right-wing or left-wing or this or that. We are all brothers and sisters in the Jewish nation. Call Yisrael of Raven Zelazah. We are all culpable, liable, and connected to one another. The beautiful videos that move me the most are when I see the Haredim dancing with the Chayalim, when I see these Haredim enlisting into the army, people who previously were in very different viewpoints, and them cooking for the soldiers, bringing sitzes to the soldiers, bringing tefillin and the, the kibot to the, to the soldiers, bringing the gemaras to the soldiers. Beautiful, beautiful. This is the first step of full redemption if we could keep up the unity, keep up the achdus. Why should it have to be a tragedy bringing people together? We should be zolcha to be together only in unity, only through good things, only through happy means, and we should be zolcha to keep this off forever. Because we say, What is the best feeling for a parent? Besides for getting a nachos report from school, it's when we see them getting along with their siblings, getting along with their brothers and their sisters, playing, laughing, hugging, having a great time together. The best feeling, for Hashem, is when we get out of the comfort, when we 
are one with one another, when we take care of one another, when we laugh with one another, we cry for one another, we do beautiful things with one another, and we stand up for one another, we put our politics and ideologies and ideas aside, and realize that literally we are all siblings of the one true king, the one true parent that is Hashem. These beautiful videos, you got to join that group, seeing these two religious ladies giving the, the Gibor Shel Imam necklace with the face imprinted of the soldier that passed or the person that passed. Beautiful, beautiful things happening in Amisol. We should hold on to it and we should all stay united, stay together, understand that we need to go away from that stuff that is not important. Understand materialism, homes, the cars, that's not what really matters. We don't take with us after 120 years. Who is really happy? He who is content with his lot, Ashrechem Yisrael, understand that Hashem is our mikvah, that we and one another are our brothers and sisters. Mik Amcha Yisrael. It's a beautiful sentiment. Am Yisrael Chai, a beautiful sentiment, but realize, understand, we are zochad and privileged. And we should not just be content with our lot, being a part of the Jewish people, but that we should be misameach with our lot, have pride. Have true pride seeing how strong the nation is. We have a promise from Hashem Blinander that we will never be fully eradicated. We will always be around. Hashem tells Avraham in these parshiot, look at the sand around. Look at the stars. Just as you can't count the stars, you can't count the sand. So too you won't be able to count the Jewish nation. They're always going to be around. And they're always going to be in existence. Understand who is really happy, someone who's content and happy with his lot in Am Yisrael, who's content with his lot in life, who could do more. The work, the real work is really making sure you do what you can in this life, gathering the mitzvahs, gathering the chesed, gathering the ma'asim tovim you can on behalf of our brethren, Yisrael, on behalf of Eretz Yisrael, and the captives on behalf of those who need refuslam and those who need protection in this world. Every mitzvah we do is like landing another bomb on the enemy. It's like landing another zechus on our achenu kolbeis Yisrael. Understand that the real world is all ma'emes, and really things are v'nahafachfu, not just on Purim, but in the next world. Do the work here don't get too comfortable remembering what is missing what was missing was the unity the achdus in all of Israel and all of B'nai Israel we yearn for the spiritual and the temple make sure to keep up what you can to do good things in this world Debbie Gottfried points out on H.com, bottom line, if you want success of any kind, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Every minute, every hour, every day that you sit around trying to figure out what to do, someone else is already doing it. Make a choice or a choice will be made for you. Don't sit around too long overthinking what to do. Ultimately, we are judged by what we do. Even a small act, especially a small act, don't wait until you're ready. None of us ever is. Anyone can start something. Few can finish, but Yishnu Perkeva says, "Lo alacha ham lachalik mor, v'lo ata ben chorin lehiba tell me mena." I say, "Masha ata yecholah." So is what I would say. Do what you can, accomplish what you can, at least get it started. You might not be able to finish, but that's not the goal. The goal is at least to start it. Priorities change if you don't constantly protect and defend them. If we don't consistently work to make our values the most important elements in our lives, we will lose our grasp on what is essential for us. Guard your values. The greatest value battles you will ever fight are within yourself and with yourself. You must always be your toughest opponent. Always demand more of yourself than others demand of you. Life can be complicated, but the truth is not. 
So you shouldn't ever feel too complacent or comfortable in life, especially when our Chaynu Gobe Israel are on the front lines. What can we do on the spiritual front lines? We could daven more, we could say Tehillim more, we could do more chesed, we could do more mitzvahs, we could do more in terms of dedicating, you could sign up to just one chesed, or you could sign up to just one thing. There are multiple, multiple organizations doing amazing, tremendous good work, and it's not just doing the financial, but it's also doing the spiritual Make sure to ask yourself, are you comfortable? Really? Why are you comfortable? What can you do to be outside your comfort? How can you work on yourself to do more, to give more, to make more of a difference, to change the world for the better, to realize what's really, truly important, what comforts are really necessary? Start with the little things, little changes. Then the true comfort will come and true change can happen. True change can happen, but really, you need to be able to be involved in your life, putting your best foot forward, moving along in life, past your comfort into the uncomfortable zone, doing what you can to be involved, doing what you can to make sure to do what you can to make the world a better point. A place. L- listen to the following example that I personally made up. Yankel Zimmers of Ocean Point has been working at Amish Point Bank for over 20 years. However, he always had a nagging feeling, a small feeling, at the back of his brain that this is not what he was meant to do. Ever since he could remember, he loved playing with trains. He took the train every chance he could, including going and coming from work. He would marvel at the craftsmanship of the trains, even peeked to the driver's section at one time or another, thinking how awesome it would be if he could actually get his hands dirty fixing and working and driving the train itself. He had always collected model trains as a hobby, but that's all it was, he thought, a hobby. Why leave such a comfortable job? He had his job at Amish Point from 9 to 5 with an hour lunch break, an hour for breaks throughout the day, with a cushy salary, a comfortable office, and heating and cooling year-round, plus the commute wasn't even 45 minutes. However, even though it was a comfortable life, working as a bank teller, sitting and doing interactions from the air-conditioned office, an air-conditioned area for Yankel, one way he finally got to thinking one day, was this really his calling? He saw a lecture, he saw a talk about, you know, finding a purpose. His real passion wasn't fixing trains. Why does he work in a bank? Where did that even come from? How did it even come about? He couldn't even remember, aside from his dad, the ever-practical Maisha Zimmers, telling him that this was a good job for a good Jewish boy with a good head on his shoulders. Don't waste your hands with your hands. Don't waste your life using your hands. But this is not what he really wanted to do in life. No, it definitely wasn't. Yes, it is more uncomfortable to be out in hot sun working on the train, but that is where his skills lie, and his skills and real talents are not where it is comfortable in the bank office. Yonko realized it was finally time for a change. He then put in two calls on his phone. The first was to his wife. The second was to the train division of the nearby transportation authority asking for an interview. We need to wake up before it's too late to get out of our comfort zone. Don't be like Yonkel. Don't wait 20 years to realize what you're really meant to do. Don't stay in a dead-end or boring, unfulfilling job or a boring, unfulfilling life just because it is comfortable. Get out of your comfort. Follow what really is meaningful and passion-filled with using your talents for you in your own life. You have to do what you can in life. I want to point out also a beautiful, beautiful thing. I've talked about this many times in many different lectures, many different shiram. It comes from H.com, from Rabbi Moskowitz pointing out. 
Changing an activity from a chore to a gift also is a small thing you could do in your life. In the book, No Sweat, How the Simple Science of Motivation Can Bring You a Lifetime of Fitness, Michelle Cigar off argues that by simply changing one word in your vocabulary and refraining, framing the task at hand, you can dramatically increase your chances of success. Instead of saying, I have to run, say to yourself, I get to run. Changing that one word from have to get makes such a difference because we are much more likely to continue activity if we view the activity as a gift or an opportunity rather than an obligation. Saying I have to do something for cholesterol robs you of autonomy and forces activity upon you. If you change it and say I get to do something for cholesterol, that is awesome. That leads to change. It means it's my choice. I get to do it because I want to. Changing that one word reframes your mindset from I'm forced to do this thing to the mindset of aren't I lucky to be able to do that one thing? I am forced is not what we want. I want is what I want. Instead of I have to daven, I have to say to him, I get to say to him, I get to daven, I get to donate, I get to do a chasana mitzvah, an opportunity, I get to serve is what many of them of the chaylam have said. It's my pleasure, it's my zechus, I get to serve and protect the nation, the land of Israel. It's my privilege, a beautiful way of looking at things. If they can say this, run to the front lines, leave everything behind, their wives, their kids, people running away even from their own wedding preparations the day before, not even getting to be showing up at their chuppah, leaving important jobs and leaving shelves unstocked in supermarkets to get to serve in the idea of to serve in Sahal. What can we do for our life that I get to do for others? Not that I'm comfortable, I don't want to do much, but what can I say that I get to do? Think I get versus I have to, especially to fight against the comfortable in life. I get to use my talents for good. I get to help Kleiser. I get to help the Chayalim. I get to help those in captivity, those who need a foolish lame, by using my powerful Tehillim, by using my powerful Tefillah, using my powerful acts in life to do good to do what you can in this life. If you have a talent, you have an ability, you can use it and say, I get to do good things. I get to make creations that Hashem puts in my mind. I get to podcast. I get to use my guitar to sing. I get to sing. I get to use my pen and to think of a small children's concept for Jews. An example against comfort, against materialism. Think about how the Jews left the comfort of Mitzrayim, quote-unquote. It was not a good place to be, but at least they had housing. Here they went into to the temporary shack, the temporary hut, and they went and they went to the 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 makeshift hut, the makeshift tent, the makeshift ohalim, and that is what we do with sukkahs. We remember that this whole life is temporary. This whole life is not permanence. So why travel through thinking that you have permanent, trying to acquire more money, more housing, more rooms, more cars? That's not what we have. We're passing through life. We're just traveling through life. The famous story of the Chavetz Chaim, Torchweb explains it better than I can. The wealthy American businessman was passing through the Polish town of Rodin, paying a visit to the home of the leader of his generation, the saintly Rabbi Yisrael Meir Cohen, known as the Chavetz Chaim. Upon entering the home, he sees how sparsely it's furnished. Where is all your furniture? The businessman asked. Where is yours? replied the Chavetz Chaim. Somewhat startled by the response, the businessman says, I'm only passing through. To which the Chavetz Chaim replies, I too am only passing through. Or passing through this world. This world, Birkevus teaches us. In 421, Rabbi Yaakov says, This world is like a lobby before the world to come. Prepare yourself in this lobby so you may enter the banquet hall 
the Talmud of Odazar talks about how this world is like Erev Shabbos. The world that comes like Shabbos, you have to prepare here, in this physical world, for the world to come. How tragic would it be if you go by 120 years and not understanding where you're going? It's like the GPS. Sometimes we're going. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we're landing. And we're, we're just going. We're just going. You have to realize that this life is a journey. We should never get too comfortable. We have to do what we can to try to move around in this life and to try to make the most of this life, to do what we can. Life is a journey. We shouldn't get too comfortable. We have to push ourselves to do so many things and many mitzvahs that don't come naturally. There are many mitzvahs that ask us to go beyond our comfort zone. There are many things we could do now for the chaylim, for those in captivity, those who need a refush lema. They should all be zochah, the learning, the shir should be a zochus for all of them. What can we do to go beyond our comfort zone for then? Make sure to go to a minion if it's a shy, introverted individual, if you can, holding the me or the meaning for someone that finds it sensory aversive. Someone with bad organizational skills might be hard to have dishes, and someone who is very very hard for them to deal with death. It might be hard to make a shiva call or go to a kavura. We have to do what we can to push ourselves into going away from what is comfortable and what is hard in this life. You can't get too comfortable in life. Don't forget where everything comes from. Who's in charge? Don't forget it's all from Hashem who gave it to us. Don't rely so much on yourself. Don't step off the path to indulge in creature comforts. Hashem gives us things, yes, to be comfortable, but it has to be to a certain degree. can't be the end-all and be-all, and it can't be extravagant. You don't need 15 bedrooms. You don't need 20 cars. I would argue you don't even need 6, 7, 8 bedrooms. It's not a crime for children to share. Children do better when they share, by the way. Some people would say maybe even a three-bedroom is enough. One boy room, one girl room, and the parent room. And Zahu, you don't need to have four, five, six, seven bedrooms. Sometimes choices are not easy or comfortable. How about instead of spending on, you know, three million on a house that has six bedrooms, why don't you spend a half a million on a house that has three or four bedrooms and use the rest for good, for tzedakah, for chesed, for charity, for gamachs. Use the money for elsewhere. How much more wonderful would that be if you could in your life? Sometimes choices are not easy or comfortable. If Hashem blesses you with comfort, make sure to use it wisely to do good. Learn Torah, do mitzvahs, and chesed. The land flourishes under our hand. How beautiful it is that Eretz Yisrael may became green once it was under our control again. Why should we feel comfortable in Gullis? Even Ben-Gurion explained how the dream was to make the desert bloom and Baruch Hashem Hashem allowed that over the past 75 plus years. Why do we feel comfortable in Gullis? It is not our land. It is not our home. We should yearn and pine for the holy land. Feel a real loss like the children of families of Ethiopia when thinking about not living there and what we lost there in the holy land with the temple. Hashem said out for us how the year will be. Think about how to help others. Let, let the idea of sukkahs and other aspects remind us that we can't get too comfortable and help out those who are not comfortable at all. We should take care of ourselves and others to have a basic level of comfort, but if others are fighting or in pain or difficulty, like this current eight star, we need to lessen our comfort, feel their plight, and maybe don't give yourself, you know, ten things of comfort for Shabbos or during the week, but maybe do four or five to feel the plight of those who are totally missing out. So many people are homeless. So many people had to be evacuated from their homes for safety reasons. So many people are displaced in, in hotels and having to sleep by other people. Feel their plight a little bit. Go out of your comfort a little bit to feel their pain. When we get caught up in the vanity and materialism of selfishness and gullus, we lose sight of where we really need to be and of what we really need to do in life. Don't be selfish. Don't think gullus is the end-all and be-all. Don't make yourself 
yourself uber comfortable, especially outside of the Holy Land of Israel. Feel that your home here is temporary, not the final destination. Have a bag packed. Have a mindset packed that you're ready to go to Israel at any time. The basic level of comfort is understandable, but realize that anything can change at any time. It's in Hashem's control, which should be Zohar to happen soon. So comfort on the basic level makes sense and is good, but don't put too much effort into it. The question is, are we comfortable really? Hopefully we're in basic comfort, but not anything too settled, not anything too permanent in Gullus. Make sure that you can do what you can for mitzvahs and chesed. Do what we can to push ourselves outside our comfortability, trying to do what we can to make this world better. Do what we can to make the people better, to have more zechusim, to more aspects for those who are fighting on the front lines do what we can to be a little less comfortable to feel their pain to feel their plight do more chesed do more good to do what we can to focus on the good to focus on the world and bring more light to the world if we can make sure that we could be a little less comfortable and understand what we should be doing in this world maybe we could finally be zochat to stay fully united fully unified and Hashem will see and maybe finally we could be zochat for all the pain to end all the tragedy to end all the destruction all the barbarism barbarism barbaric actions to end that evil should be fully destroyed on all fronts on all methods and all all places, whether it be Hamas or ISIS or whether it be the terrible Palestinian supporters around the world, all evil should be eradicated forever. There should be only peace, goodness, and, and prosperity and wonderful unity of the Jewish people and of the world at large. And we should be Zohar that Mashiach comes today. The base of comes today and we feel only the end times of wonderful times speedily. And may that day be today. This has been Tani Talks Radio where we talk a topic for the week for the audience members to keep. And I'm your host, Tani.